Hello and welcome to a special edition of OklahomaCraftBeer.com. I'm your host, Brian Wellsbacher. Thanks for joining me. This past weekend, we uh, saw quite an interesting development in Oklahoma. We had the State of the Brunion, a local beer summit in Oklahoma City, uh, about, uh, oh, I don't know, January 13th or so this past week. Uh, good way to kick off the year. Uh, starting on a positive note, the first ever uh, Craft Beer Association of Oklahoma Beer Summit. Like they said, it's labeled as the State of the Brunion. Uh, local craft breweries from Oklahoma gathered to discuss the past, present, and future of their artisanal craft. And it was taking place at Oak and Ore in Oklahoma City. Uh, it was on a monumental occasion, having pivotal players like brewers and representatives from the Oklahoma Senate to acknowledge the archaic liquor laws and uh, people speaking out. Uh, for the past few years, uh, grassroots efforts like local have been uh, diligently working to get the word out to the masses, uh, reaching a point where breweries have said that this is enough. Uh, we want equal treatment like most other states in the Union. Uh, we want equal treatment uh, just like wine's getting in this state. So uh, for the next two episodes, we're going to kind of recap what they spoke about, and uh, I was there to record uh, quite a few of the speakers. Uh, activists, brewers, and employees about the state of the craft beer in Oklahoma and how we, the consumer, can help change the archaic laws. So after listening, please find your local state rep uh, and make your voice heard that these laws must change. You can go to localok.org. They have a link out there that uh, you can go and find your local state representative. And finally, uh, most importantly, continue to support local breweries just by purchasing their beer and merchandise. Uh, Your dollar always has a vote. And it's always been my goal to support local breweries, and I can't think of a better way than this podcast that you're listening to. And always remember, beer is okay. Organization called the League of Oklahomans for Change in Alcohol Laws or Local. Uh, Kevin has been instrumental uh, in advocating not only for consumers but for breweries uh, at the state level, uh, and he's here to talk about. Uh, North Carolina, a model, legislative change, and impact on local consumers, breweries, and the economy. Patrick is a tall man. I am not so tall. As Patrick said, my name is Kevin. Uh, I'd like to begin this by... uh, being kind of a little bit of a jerk. Uh, Everybody register to vote. If you are not registered to vote, do it today, do it tomorrow, do it soon. We need your vote in November. Because the only way these breweries get these things is if you vote. Because we were foolish enough to put it in our Constitution. Additionally, please support every legislator who is advocating for change. Those of you who live in Norman, Emily Virgin is up for re-election. Please support Emily Virgin. She has a fundraiser on January 24th. So show up to that, thank her, and come on guys. We have to support those who are trying to make positive differences here in Oklahoma. And Emily Virgin is one of them. She is the House co-author of Senate Bill 424, which is the one that allows breweries to serve at point of production. So now that I have been a bit of a jerk, we will begin my overwrought titled uh, presentation. I'm sorry, I come from the world of academia. That seems to be such a, a life ago. 
but and unfortunately it's going to show in this conversation. Because one of my favorite classes I ever took in seminary was a course called Law Codes in Ancient uh, Near East. I will tell you a lot about me and why I don't have very many friends, because I read a lot of law codes. And what they look for is a thing called textual dependency in laws. Now, I know that's going to sound funny, but textual dependency means it's a law that shows that it came from a different law and how they changed it. I know it's a, it's, it's a very intellectual exercise, but this is how I come at things, and I apologize for that. So now let me back up. We need to talk about the history of prohibition in, in the U.S. I know ZP gave a great uh, primer. I'm going to go back on that and talk a little bit more, because prohibition in in the U.S. doesn't really start in the 1920s, nothing divided, nothing comes out of nowhere. I'm sorry, that is a, a wrong philosophy. It was actually developed over a period of time. And specifically for the U.S., prohibition comes out of the Civil War. And the Civil War was a time when we were looking to unite a, uh, a nation. And one of the ways we did it was around these uh, punitive morality clauses, such as the idea that uh, alcohol is bad for you. And, well, maybe it's bad for pregnant women, but drunk, had in moderation, it's fine. So you begin with this thing called the Women's Christian Temperance Union, founded by Carrie Nation. Carrie Nation is predominantly strong in Kansas, and what she successfully helps to lobby there is for them to put prohibition in their constitution. Zach Richard is absolutely right, we're the only state to enter the union with it in our constitution. They are one of the only other ones to add it to their constitution, and they made it difficult for change to happen. Carrie Nation then comes to Oklahoma, and then the Women's Christian Temperance Union, amongst with another, uh, the Anti-Saloon League, are instrumental in passing prohibition here in this state. And specifically, it passes along also on racist lines of, you have to be careful for Native Americans because they can have access to the drink. So anyways, and so we passed that in 1907, as ZP mentions, you get prohibition in 1920. The U.S. repealed it in 1933, and then we uh, eventually see it repealed in Oklahoma in 1959. But I'm not necessarily here just to talk about Oklahoma. What about North Carolina? Well, North Carolina's changes originate in the early 2000s from a group like myself. So local is a uh, consumer-led movement. We are grassroots. We are a 501c6. We are funded purely through uh, your guys' donations and the donations at, uh, at the first shop. Plus, we do uh, some beer festivals. So. Similar, we, we borrow our model from other states, such as um, North Carolina's Pop the Cat movement. Now, North Carolina, every state loves to play the Impression Olympics and discuss amongst each other who has it worse when it comes to beer laws. I'm still convinced we take the gold, but some of my other friends will, will, will bite back on that one. So what happens in uh, North Carolina is that they have, they, they get brew pubs in the 1980s, they eventually start developing craft breweries, but their craft breweries can't produce a beer above 6% ABV and sell it in the state. So that means, I mean, most of those beers on the board cannot be produced in that state at that time. Eventually, a bunch of people get together, they start drinking, and they're like, we should do something about these laws. They go to illegal bottle shares, where they're sharing beers that are above 6% to discuss what we could do as a state to bring about change. So North Carolina eventually develops, they, they have this, this group, they push for legislative change, and change occurs in, um, let's see, it begins in, in 2005. Now this 6% APV cap is originally a, a holdover from Prohibition in, in 1935. 
for North Carolina. So North Carolina then changes the model and then it leads to this boom of craft beer. You see now today over a, either over 100 or darn near 100 craft breweries in the state. Now the reason why North Carolina is such an important model is not because we have that APV cap of what breweries can produce and sell in the state, but, but what they did, that textual dependency. When, Alec, when North Carolina changed their laws, South Carolina played catch up. South Carolina, two years later, they built their, their uh, APV cap, which is 5.5%, and busted it up to 15.5%. They then eventually changed their laws to allow breweries to sell at point of production because they were losing out on business to other states. And that's exactly what Oklahoma is losing out on. We're losing out on business to other states that have more progressive models. You don't have to go far. I live in Tulsa. I can drive the Fayetteville for better laws. I can do a Fayetteville L Trail, uh, do it safely with a designated driver, of course, or Uber and all those fun things. And you can hit up seven breweries and you have a great time. Many Oklahomans go over there to enjoy and partake, excuse me, and partake of their, uh, the scene. But this is something that Oklahoma has to miss out on because of these archaic laws that we are facing today. But North Carolina is not the only one. You see, going on in, in Georgia right now, Georgia last legislative session was successful in passing a, a bill that allowed breweries to sell a point of production. However, that success was rolled back and through um, some lobbying interests of some other folks. Now, they only allow you to come by and take a six pack. And it's actually, as a, you pay for the tour and they give you a six pack as you go out the door. It's a souvenir. So it's very important for organizations like the association to exist, and as, as well as local, to push for change and to be vigilant to make sure change isn't rolled back in the state. We don't want to see Georgia and we fight for all of these gains and then to be, go away. But what we also don't want to see is somebody have better laws than we do and attract more business. So Georgia is about to face a rewrite of their laws. It's, it's being debated. It's much like SB 383. I haven't seen the language of our Senate Bill 383. I'm curious to see what it is before local endorses it and says, yes, this is what we want to see. We already know we're down with SB 424, and we support that as well. But as we are progressing forward, what we need to do is be like the North Carolina model and be the one who sets the bar above for other states. We need to find a way to attract business here in Oklahoma. It's not good enough to go through all of this and to catch ourselves up to 1965, the eve of the craft beer revolution. We need to set our sights beyond that and how we can steal dollars away from other states. Because I don't know if you realize that we're in a budget crisis. And one of the best solutions to a budget crisis is to find new ways to do business and to find innovative ways to bring tax dollars here. So that is what North Carolina model provides for us. So I lead, once again, this grassroots organization, which is separate, we're a different arm, I would say, from the same fight as the association. You can support us, follow us on Facebook. We are known for troubling the senators with our phone calls and our emails and filling up voicemails and boxes. We just ask that you do it politely, do it with a smile. These are people who are working, and we really appreciate them for their change and what they're doing. So if you guys have any questions, feel free to flag me down, and I will gladly 
discuss with you all the boring minutia as somebody who's recovering from being a professor will discuss with you. It'll be boring, we'll have a beer, it'll be fine, we'll get through it. Thank you guys for your time.
Preparies represent 0.5%. That's not 5%, that is one half of 1% of our national beer production. Uh, however, they do represent 11% market share, uh, which is incredible growth over the last 10 years. Uh, the craft brewer, the craft market uh, represents 101.5 annual revenue uh, as of 2014. Uh, in 2014, it grew 0.5%, uh, and so most indicators are showing that we will be around 105 billion overall. The overall U.S. beer market, the craft segment of that represents roughly 20 billion dollars. Uh, so while we only represent 0.5% of the production, we do represent almost 20% uh, of the overall revenue uh, in the U.S. beer market. So, the 2015 state of craft beer in the United States. And I don't know if you guys watched the State of the Union last night, but I'm, I like politics a little bit, so I watched it. My favorite part of the State of the Union, uh, it comes at different points in this, the speech for different presidents, they stand up and they say, the State of the Union is strong. Uh, well, the State of the Craft Beer Brilliant is strong, nationally, as well as in our local state. Uh, our, the craft beer segment uh, of the U.S. market is represented to lots of different brands. Uh, but some interesting facts are that the largest segment is IPAs, with roughly 15% of all craft beer. Uh, being IPAs, the second largest segment is labeled seasonal. Seasonal is kind of a uh, you know broad category for a lot of different styles, uh, but that means that people are looking for variety uh, in their choices. Uh, and overall, uh, craft breweries continue to grow. Um, in 2015, is projected. I believe that over 500 breweries will open and less than 50 will close. Uh, and so there's an incredible amount of staying power that the consumer has, has exhibited a large desire for local and authentic products. 2015 also marked uh, what I think is going to be a continuing trend in the craft beer world. And that's the era of acquisition. Uh, I didn't actually count them up, but um, there have been several large brewing partners who have sold in 2015 for what most people in the business world will consider astronomical numbers. Uh, and, you know, much to our own uh, demise, uh, Anheuser-Busch isn't always responsible. Um, Foreign partners are involved, like Heineken and Dosecchi's. I mentioned to someone the other day that I thought that uh, 2016 showed the first time that a brewery was ever sold for more than a billion dollars. Uh, and I was wrong, it happened in 2015 uh, with the sale of Ballast Point in San Diego. Uh, so as we transition into what 2016 is going to look like, uh, I think it's going to look a lot more like that. We're going to see breweries being bought up by big conglomerates. Uh, and we're going to see that filter down uh, through all aspects of our industry. We're going to see a squeeze on um, goods, goods that we require to make our products. Uh, hops, for instance. 
Um, I think hops are going to continually be a source of strike for craft breweries in 2016. Uh, the German hop uh, crop for this year, the European hop crop as a whole, is down 25%. Uh, so all of you brewers out there or planning brewers uh, that rely on saws and power tower, uh, you may look at uh, seeing shortages in your supply. Uh, and that's going to happen across the board, even with American varietals, but not because of shortages uh, in the harvest, but because demand is so high uh, that they cannot reasonably meet anyone's expectations. Um, but all that to say, I think 2016 will continue to be a strong year uh, for craft brewers nationwide. Um, there seems to be no slowing at this point. Everyone predicts that at some point we will reach a saturation point uh, and a, a rash of breweries will start closing because they can no longer keep their doors open. Uh, however, I was talking to a friend the other day and he said, well, you know, what happens if that happens? He said, well, the only way for that to happen is if our own communities turn against us. Uh, and so, you know, for me as a craft brewer and for so many of my peers, we rely on you guys to support us uh, through the thick and the thin, um, because we love where we're from, uh, and we love to support our own communities. So, what 2016 will bring, no one can really tell. Uh, but I believe that, that craft beer is here to stay. I think there are numbers that will back that up. Uh, but more importantly, you see it in the faces of the people that come through your doors and drink your product. So, uh, are there any questions? Okay, well, we're going to go and take a break until about 5 o'clock, and then we're going to come back and we'll have Senator Bice here, who unequivocally is our loudest voice in the Capitol. Uh, Senator Bice was first elected in the fall of 2014, making uh, last session her first session as an Oklahoma legislature. During that session, she introduced Senate Bill 383, uh, which came to be known as the Brazil Bill. Uh, which was about refrigeration and grocery stores and uh, convenience stores. Uh, Sarah Bice, as far as I understand, did this completely on her own, uh, which takes a lot of gravitas as a freshman senator. Uh, and since that point, she's been nothing but our biggest advocate and our largest uh, voice at the Capitol. Uh, currently, she represents uh, a Senate district that is in northern Oklahoma County uh, and extending into northern Canadian County, so Edmond and Piedmont and northern Yukon. Uh, and we are incredibly grateful that she's here. Please welcome Senator Bice. Even with heels, I'm not quite as tall as Patrick. Uh, first of all, I feel real official with all the flags behind me, so thank you. Messenger over there for, for uh, the decor. I want to give you all a little bit of background about Senate Bill 383 and sort of how this whole um, conversation over the last year transpired and then where we are now and where we hope to be. Uh, I've been asked many times over from reporters and others why I filed Senate Bill 383. And it's a really easy answer I like cold beer. Uh, <laughs> 
Uh, I used to be a food reviewer for the Gazette, and I became friends with a lot of the local chefs in town and restaurateurs, and I befriended a lot of the craft brewery guys that were up and coming at the time. Uh, Jane Merriweather with Coop, uh, the Marshall folks, uh, I became really interested in what was going on in the craft brewery industry. When I filed Senate Bill 383, the original, uh, as Patrick mentioned, chill bill, was just to allow for uh, liquor stores to be able to refrigerate their product. Seemed like a really reasonable, easy request uh, to me at the time. Little did the freshman legislator know uh, what I was in for. But it's turned into, I think, a really big conversation that needs to be had. Part of the thing that's, uh, I think, hasn't been told as far as the story is concerned is why the laws are the way they are now. What you'll find interesting, or at least I did, is that most of our alcohol laws that were um, passed were written into our Constitution in 1959. After the repeal of Prohibition, we waited that long to really put these into effect. And they're in the Constitution, which means it's virtually impossible to change them without a vote of the people, of course. Uh, and to get that is a process. So after the chill bill uh, was filed, people were really excited. I heard a lot from craft brew industry. I heard a lot from you know, citizens around the state. And I also heard from this other group that said, please, can you have wine in grocery stores? And that group was a bunch of moms that want to go buy diapers and goldfish crackers and a bottle of wine. And being a mother of two daughters, I understand. So I started researching how we could make these changes and what it would affect. And the changes are truly monumental. They affect everything from not only the retail liquor stores and wholesalers and craft breweries, but they affect things like the tax commission. Because what I didn't realize at the time is there are two different tax structures for the beers that are sold in a liquor store and the beers that are sold at the convenience store uh, and groceries. And as a side note, you all will be interested to know that uh, the beer that's sold at convenience and grocery stores is called non-intoxicating beer. <laughs> How many of you have been to college? Raise your hand. Yeah, I would beg to guess that that's probably not an accurate assessment of 3-2 beer exactly. But the reality is, we need two things in the state to really, I think, move us to the 21st century. And that is a single full strength system that allows for craft brew, like the guys here tonight, to be able to sell their product in a grocery and convenience store, cold. Uh, and we need to be able to have wine in grocery and convenience stores. And that's what we're trying to look to do um, with Senate Bill 383. It won't be easy. There will be a lot of pushback. Uh, there will be a lot of folks in surrounding communities that are not really in favor of this type of legislation for a variety of reasons. But I feel like that for us to move forward and do the things that, that make our state great, we need to have this discussion and it needs to happen now. We're missing out on uh, great opportunities like beer and wine festivals, food and wine festivals that you see across the country. We're missing out on breweries that don't want to come to the state because of the complicated laws or the fact that we can't refrigerate product. Many of you may or may not know that um, some of the beers that are sold need to be refrigerated for quality and freshness purposes, particularly the hoppier types of beers. And so we're missing out on some of those. So this legislation will really help to um, grow our offerings uh, and, and bring us in line with surrounding states.
uh, I would love to take some questions. It's a complicated, I think, a topic. But if you all have some specific questions about the industry or about sort of what the legislation may be, um, I'd love to take some. Yes, sir. Where is this pushback coming from? Is it just religious fundamentalists, or I, I'd like to be prepared to make arguments. So the question was, where is the pushback coming from? Really, the pushback is a variety of, of um, entities, but keep in mind, change is, is difficult for everyone. It's an unknown, and especially when you've grown your business on a platform that's been in place for over 50 years, when you want to make these changes, it becomes very problematic to them. They feel like that, how are we going to survive? How can we make this work? Um, you know, the, re the retail package stores, the liquor stores, have con some concerns about uh, the number of um, access points. If they have, if grocery and convenience stores have the ability to sell wine, how's that going to impact them? One of the benefits I will say is to them is we're looking at a couple of things that would help them. How many of you have gone to a liquor store and wished you could have bought a wine to go with that beer? Yes. We are looking at allowing um, sales of ancillary items in liquor stores, which I think is really important. They need to be able to sell a corkscrew, a wine glass, you know, mixers, soda, seltzer, a lime, whatever it is that they feel you know, will enhance their business. Um, they'll be able to refrigerate. I think that's a really big thing for everyone. We want to be able to you know, buy a cold beer and take it home and drink it. Um, and there are a lot of other things that are sort of going into that. So they're one aspect. Of course, there's also people that are on the substance abuse um, side of the coin that feel like that allowing for more uh, access points could be detrimental to those that have battle substance abuse issues, and we have to keep those things in mind. Uh, so it's not one entity. I think there's a little bit of a concern from a lot of sources, and we have to do the best we can to address that. I will say that I've, I've made it clear to everyone, and I've spent the last eight months meeting with every entity that I can possibly you know, think of that would have an interest in this topic, and I, I've been very clear with them. I want to help you, and I want to give you some wins, but I can't give you everything you're asking for. So you've got to come to the table, you've got to compromise and negotiate, and make this a reality. Great question. Anyone else? Oh, he has a mic there now. Yes, Do you, did you have a question? I did. I was, I was kind of wondering, you know, I know your standpoint on everything, but along with your uh, your fellow, uh, you know, compadres in the, in the Senate, what is everyone else's feelings on this? Do you have a lot of support, or is there a lot of uh, other senators who kind of get on board with kind of what we're trying to do? I will not um, speak for my colleagues because I think that they, in all fairness, I think they need to see the legislation. And okay. uh, we're currently looking, writing that. We're in the process of writing the referendum or the state question and how that will be laid out. And then there is um, an unbelievable amount of rewrites to Title 37, which is where all of the alcohol statutes are. To give you some perspective, there are, uh, I believe, 200 pages to Title 37. It's a tremendous amount of information that we have to look at and analyze and potentially rewrite. So I think until the final drafts are put out, you know, I know that there are some that really feel like this is going to be a benefit, but there are others that are cautiously optimistic. So I don't want to speak for the whole, um, but I have a good feeling. I think the amount of support I've seen from Oklahoma City and Tulsa particularly has been tremendous. 
the Tulsa Chamber made it a legislative item on their agenda. The Tulsa Young Professionals have said, Senator Weiss, what can we do to help you? Let us know how we can help. Um, the State Chamber and Oklahoma City Chamber are also you know, getting on board. So I think that the, the communities are really realizing that this is an important initiative and that we need to um, try to get this um, done this session. Other questions? Yes, sir. Tying on to that, what is the reality? You know, everybody's had a lot of questions of what's going to actually happen at the end of this year. Everybody's saying this is an election year. This is a great chance for us to get something into legislation. What is the actual reality of something? The question was, what is the reality of actually getting this uh, legislation passed? I feel very confident about it. I've been working ever since the end of last session to uh, bring these parties together and get perspectives from everyone to you know, put together what I thought was reasonable um, legislation. That being said, there is also the possibility of an initiative petition by an outside group. Um, and if that happens, uh, you know, the legislature will have no control over it. That sounds great in theory to some, but the reality is we lose a lot of control over things that are really important to some entities. So I want to fix this legislatively. I don't want it to end up in an initial petition route, which is the collecting signatures and getting it on the ballot that route. Um, but I do feel pretty confident that something will be done, one way or another. So. Sir? Who are the, uh, the groups that we need to convince or that, that otherwise wouldn't be in this room that, that would be that might be questionable about this modernization, and you know, and what what do we need to do to ease their minds that this isn't the you know we're not out to to, to do something bad. And, I don't know so his question was, who, who do we need to reach out to um, to convince them that this isn't you know the worst thing um, ever, this legislation? And I think that the one thing I would say is, you know, there is some uh, reservation from the the package, the liquor stores. They're very concerned because I think they um, are unsure about how this will affect their business. You know, their concern is if you're selling, um, you know, Arjuna, the anthem Arjuna at um, the grocery store, that I may be willing to go purchase that at the grocery store rather than come to my local liquor store, which is a independently owned um, single store. The thing I will say to that, though, and I'll, I'll add a little caveat here, is one of the things that we will be doing because we're moving to single strength is the liquor stores will now be able to sell everything that the grocery and convenience stores used to, you know, have been selling for the past 60 years. So you need Bud Light if you need a PBR or Natty um, or, <laughs> or, or, or a Keystone. I'm just saying, but... But the, but the liquor stores will be able to carry those things. And, and right now, the 3-2 uh, beer makes up, I believe it's 80 to 85% of the entire beer sales in Oklahoma. So now, if I'm hosting an you know, event in my home, I can go to a liquor store and I can buy spirits, I can buy wine, I can buy any sort of beer, including the craft beer. I can buy limes and seltzers and sodas, and I've gotten it all in one place. And that's not currently the way that you know the system is laid out. So. I think maybe uh, reassuring the liquor store owners that, look, we're still here. We want to support you. Or, you know, we want this to happen, but we but we need you to also understand that this is important to us as citizens of the state. So, great question. Anyone else? One other thing I want to mention, too. Uh, there's been a couple of folks that have asked about sales on-premise. And what that means is if I visit... Uh, 
Iron Monk or 405 or Rough Tail. I'm trying to throw out as many of these local breweries as I can. Thank you. Uh, if I visit one of those breweries, currently you're not allowed to sell um, their full strength uh, product on premise. And there's been a lot of requests for people to be able to, to buy uh, the product. There's a Senate Bill 424, which Senator Brian Crane introduced last session, that would have done that very thing. Unfortunately, it sort of got tied up in the bigger picture of Senate Bill 383. But I do want to see that happen. I think that's a really important piece of this because it helps expand those breweries. People want to do a brewery tour. They want to, you know, visit the state and, and have these opportunities to, you know, purchase and, and head back. They'll have that, and right now um, they have to go to the liquor store to do that. So. The marshals are over here clapping. Happy here. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Any other questions? Uh, the, other, the last thing I will say, and I think this is a really, really important point, especially for all of you that have never engaged in the political process. I'm going to give you some stats just to, to, to give you a, a, a high-level overview. I was elected in August of, of 2014. There are 76,000 constituents living in District 22. Less than 32,000 are even registered to vote and less than 7,000 voted in the runoff election that put me into office. So the point I'm trying to make is, I hear often, especially from my generation and younger, that our vote doesn't matter. And I think that's hogwash. If you get out and, and vote, if you get out and research candidates, if you spread the message about people, you can make a difference. So I encourage all of you, Get on the website, find out who your House representative and your senator are, email them and say, hey, I want you to support this legislation. It's the right thing and it needs to happen now. Thank you all very much.